Good morning and welcome to the show that we like to call, Hey, I made a bong out of this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That explains so much. With me today is Sam Livingston Gray. Oh, good morning, Coraline. And that is probably the second best podcast name ever. And you know the rest of that tale. So I'll just hand it over to Jessica Kerr. Thank you, Sam. I am super happy to be here on Greater Than Code. And I am thrilled to be here with Astrid County. Thank you, Jessica. And I am thrilled to introduce our guest today, Lorena Mesa. Lorena is a political analyst turned coder, a software engineer at Sprout Social Platform. She is director on the Python Software Foundation, Pilates Chicago co-organizer, and Write Speak Code conference organizer. Lorena loves to make meaning out of data, asking big questions and using her code to build models to derive that meaning. Part Star Wars fanatic, but mostly a Trekkie, Lorena abides by the motto, live long and prosper. Welcome to Greater Than Code, Lorena. Hello. Thank you for that glorious intro with so many words. So you (laughs) killed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) So here on Greater Than Code, we usually like to start by finding out your origin story. So tell us everything about you since you were born. Wow. Since I was born. I mean, there's (laughs) many things I can talk about when I was little. Spanish was my first language. Fun fact. I actually had speech language therapy for many a moon because I always inverted my English and Spanish. But rather than talk about that for a long time, (laughs) um, I think what's kind of cool that I like to share with people is a little bit about the story about how I got into coding because I am a career changer. So in university, I actually studied uh, at a university here in Illinois that was kind of uniquely positioned to be able to do some work on Obama for America. And at that time, when I started doing work at Obama for America, I majored in political science. There was not really this big belief, I think, that we see today that code can touch everything and ought to do everything. This idea that code is a new literacy, I don't think really had reached many chambers and many people. (laughs) So it was really exciting to work on that campaign to kind of see how people who may not have otherwise coded were able to get into a political campaign and do some cool stuff with code. So I worked on the Latino vote aspect there, doing a lot of data munching, data cleaning, which is how I first actually started working with Python. And yeah, I did that for two campaigns. And eventually over time, through um, combination of meeting amazing people in the Chicago civic uh, engagement space and the open source software community in Chicago found my way into coding. So I'm more than happy to talk more specifics about that. But yeah, I come from the political research background and have moved into the role of a day-to-day software engineer just a few years ago. So that's me. Lorena, what's your superpower? What is my superpower? I asked you um, first. <laughs> You know, I don't know if this is a superpower or like not, but I've been told by many people, especially when they hear the kind of activities that I partake in, that I have endless energy. Um, I do a lot of things. And I think after grad school, I just got to a place where I sleep only five hours a night and I'm pretty good on that. Um, So perhaps the idea that I don't need a lot of sleep is a superpower, but I don't know, maybe that adds eccentricities to me. So I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm a little more interested in what you learned while you were doing the campaign work, because you said you got started with Python there. So what were you doing that made you have to start using Python? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think a lot of when you think about politics, it's a lot of these ideas that it's people have issues and those issues are kind of infathomable, right? When someone says, when I align with this issue, there's certain language that you use to talk to people. And there's kind of a certain belief that like, for example, Illinois, Chicago, Chicago is always a blue city, right? So the idea of like, it possibly having spaces for independent or Republican candidates sometimes can be thrown by the wayside because party politics is party politics as usual. And I think what was a little different at OFA, Obama for America, was this idea that we can actually use data to develop more specific kind of what we may think of from the user UI UX kind of community of like personas and have a better understanding of what issues may speak to people and really understand better get out the vote initiatives. So it was actually trying to track data, add more data sets to make more comprehensive understandings of who people were and what issues they spoke to them, and also trying to diversify ways in which outreach happened. So I think what was really interesting there was just taking some of these assumptions of hey, this, this community is always going to align this way to saying, hey, let's actually put some data behind it and see if these truths hold up. So yeah, I think just the idea of integrating new data sources into politics was a pretty profound thing. A lot of the idea of how data collection happened would be 
you registered as a candidate for this party, you may have voted historically this way, and there may be other sources of data that you could purchase. But really at Obama for America, they started trying to add more data collection points in with the tools that were developed at Obama for America through the website and actually having more communities for people that wasn't just like, hey, I'm a Democrat, I'm a Republican, or I'm a veteran, but having a a wider plethora of identities in which people could participate and see if their voice could be heard or aligned with the rhetoric of the campaign. Very cool. Mm -hmm. So Lorena, did you find that, I'm kind of curious, I'm kind of divorced from the political process because I'm not allowed to vote for personal security reasons. Right. Um, voter registration rules are public and I'm someone who gets a lot of harassment and I get doxxed. Mm-hmm. I can't have my address out there anyway. Um, but I, I do try and stay politically engaged. And I'm curious right. if you found that in traditionally blue areas, blue voters don't turn out quite as frequently as um, people who maybe feel more marginalized by the political process. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So an issue that's near and dear to my heart is basically the issue of undocumented immigrants. Um, My father's family is from Mexico, and I've had the fortune of working closely with some activists in that space. And I think that is another community, clearly, that being public threatens their livelihood here in the United States, the fact that they can continue to stay here, right? So I think when it comes to this idea, the fallacy that blue is blue and red is red, I think what we're increasingly seeing from the 2008 campaign forward is that these arbitrary labels, the idea that we have a dichotomy of beliefs that it has to be this or that is really starting to crumble. I mean, this last campaign has really given us a lot of insight into that. People are getting frustrated with the politics as normal. You know, I'm not a political pundit by any means, but I myself have that I'm increasingly getting more frustrated participating within the common structure as it exists today. So when it comes to the discussion of what politics matter within blue areas, I think it's easy to overemphasize the priority of some of the issues. But I think that the thing that we need to be mindful of is, are these issues of privacy? Are these issues of who's at the bullhorn? (laughs) And so... I guess the big thing for me has been, well, I got started in politics. I moved into software because I felt that participating within the structure as it currently exists doesn't amount to change. I think we need to have discourses that happen outside of the the political structures that exist. And I think one way that we can do that is through like this, like podcasts like this, is going out into the community and speaking to people and speaking to them in ways that is meaningful and creates access. So I do think that the last few campaigns have maybe given us more ways to think about that and has inserted code as a tool that can help us develop other ways to be an activist or to inspire conversations. But it it has also been a little bit slippery. So I don't know if I exactly answered your question, but I think some of that frustration that you feel is something that I myself have been feeling over the last the three big presidential campaigns. Wow. So you actually got into software and data through people. Yes, yes. So the, my master's research, actually, I looked at the the impact of the mortgage crisis on undocumented Latinos in the Chicagoland area. And what I essentially found is there was a minimal amounts of data to describe this experience. And when you get into the question of data ethics and how do you report on things like that, that's actually a huge topic I'm really interested in. And I'm not quite sure where to go with it, but it is something that I'm seeing pop up increasingly more and more around it. So a lot of the line of inquiry and in how I've been developing my career has been, you know, at the intersection of data and software, what kind of things do we as as software engineers or people who can code or people who are code illiterate, if you will, however you define that, our responsibility in the data collection and data usage policies, if there aren't policies, how do we create them? So a, a lot of where I would like to see conversations going next is very much informed by this kind of space. And I think we are seeing a lot of people who are asking questions around that. So by collecting data and analyzing the data on these Um, communities that were otherwise unknown, you've like added visibility. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a suspect thing. Um, what what kind of work I did with my master's research was more repurposing so that we have the, the census data that happens every, every 10 years, but then there's also other uh, community surveys that happen that speak to more nuanced socioeconomic factors. So I kind of try to flesh out some more of that. And while this is hard to quantify, I did do more qualitative research in trying to, to make use of the idea of a moral witness and trying to bring in testimony, but at least tell it in the idea of through a digital medium of 
what someone's experience may be. And then that way, in the idea of perhaps having a quote unquote persona, which I understand that there's problems with that as well. If you can at least have a diversified source of data sets available, you can try to at least tell the story a little bit more holistically. But it can also present challenges because I think one of the things that was a little scary was when you're starting those relationships with people and they want to know what you're doing, <laughs> you can tell someone, hey, this is this is what I want to do. But you create a data set. And I always like to think of it this way. Imagine you have a startup, you do something really cool, and then you have a buyout. What happens to that data after the fact, right? You, we, I think one of the big questions you know, both from like, at least from a social scientist that I think about now as a software engineer is, okay, if there's a buyout, like what happens to that data in the future? At least as a social scientist, if it's my proprietary research and the idea of maybe I went in and did a PhD, ideally I would be doing research in one area for the duration of my uh, academic career. But as a software engineer, we change problem spaces so frequently that I think that's one of the things that can be lost, right? So what happens to data after the fact? How can we keep track of that? And there's a lot of safety and security concerns with that, right? Yes, yes, yes. I think we see that in many ways. I mean, um, it was really interesting to see uh, what was happening with Mayor de Blasio in New York when essentially they had started collecting data around giving out identification cards for folks who were otherwise undocumented. But then the federal government said, hey, we want to actually use this in some of our overhaul and how ICE is going to be doing deportations and processing people who may be kind of in a gray like legal space. So then the idea of like, hey, we've actually collected this data and we had, the, we had good intentions, but then who owned it? Does the federal government own it or does the city own it? And so there's all this conflict that happens. And so knowing the life cycle of our data is really, really important. I am so curious if we have good tools to do that. I don't know. I I guess maybe I'm newer to this and I'm sure that many people think about this, but that is something that I just keep hearing people talk about where they're like, oh yeah, we can collect this data thing without really thinking about like why they need to use it or like trying to come up with that argument first. It's, I don't know. It's a little interesting to me. I saw a talk recently by Dana Boyd. You know, she's a mm-hmm. researcher. She runs Data and Society Institute in New York. And her talk was data that's being used to predict crime and how it's already biased because of some of the methods that are used to actually go out and police the streets and how that information is recorded. And that we need to be really careful about just because we have lots of data doesn't mean that our data is all is, is the full picture, because there's kind of this assumption that lots of data means accuracy and not necessarily that you have to also try to control for the bias that was used to collect the data, because usually the data when it was being collected wasn't being collected for the purpose with which it's being used now. And there's a lot of concern about how to move forward with that because, you know, in the last 10 years, we've generated so much data mm-hmm. via social reasons like our phones and other statuses mm-hmm. that now there's companies that are emerging to try to repackage that data and sell that data. And there's a lot of unanswered questions and like ethical gray areas as to how you're supposed to move forward because there's not law yet that's been created around this with the same problem that you just stated about who owns the data, who gets to decide its purpose. And that type of stuff, I don't know if we have created real tools for yet, because it seems like people are just kind of starting to think about these questions in a bigger way. Yeah. So in Chicago here, it's a little bit of a conservative in the traditional context think tank called the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, but they had an event that was named something to the effect about security. The name eludes me right now. But the director for the Electronic Tier Foundation was there. And she pretty much, I thought, was the only voice of reason in saying, hey, you're all talking about Russia and we need to think about security from the idea of like from the national security perspective. But what about the idea of like individual people? And she kept pointing out, I'm really distraught that the EFF is a small small nonprofit is basically creating the tools to inform the broader business world about what it means to collect data and like what kind of security tools and implementation you have to have in your organization and things that you have to think about. So I I think it's really interesting that these conversations seem to be coming from you know, when we do think about it, it's always such a police conversation of, no, this is national security, national intelligence. But again, it's really just coming back down to us as individuals to be, you know, more informed, more empowered. Here in Chicago, we have Shy Hack Night, and there's a really great cybersecurity kind of 101 that they do. And kind of like, what do you need to know as an activist for how to protect your data and to protect yourself as a person in the digital space? So I think a lot of these efforts is stuff I'm really interested in. So we'd like to give a shout out to um, one of our newer patrons, Greg Fox, he is GK Fox on Twitter. 
and remind everyone that we are a 100% listener-funded show. If you would like to support us in the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash greater than code, pledge at any level, and get access to our patron-only Slack community, where we do cool things like sometimes we have a lottery to see if a patron wants to be a guest panelist or give people the opportunity to talk to our guests after a show or to suggest guests. So kind of a cool community and um, definitely worth your while and pledge at any level to get access to that. And thank you for your ongoing support. We love you all. Wait, wait, there is a new person here. Sam, who's your friend? Yes. You mean Lorena? Lorena is also my friend, but no, there's a whole other new person here. We have another surprise today for our listeners, and that is that my friend and former coworker Rain Hendricks has just joined us. Rain describes himself as a caring and considerate technical leader, coach, mentor, and teammate. His two greatest passions are helping people work better together and helping people solve hard technical challenges, especially in infrastructure and distributed systems. He also wrote a database in Haskell once, so he has that going for him, which is nice. Rain, welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Hi, Rain. Hello. Hi. I am delighted and excited to be here. And you can tell that I prepared that because it rhymes. <laughs> but let's face it, that's really all the prep you did, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting called out in the first 30 seconds. Awesome. It's going to go well. I Welcome. <laughs> and fun fact, when I name-checked him on, la- on our last show, I had no idea that Rain was going to join us this time. All the things you don't know. Everything that rises know. must converge. <laughs> I love that song. So, Lorena, when you started doing data collection and data modeling, it seems like Python is kind of a natural choice for that kind of work. Is that why and how you got into Python? Yeah. Um, so there's two languages, or rather three. There's many languages. Let's let, let's face it. If you have the desire to do a thing and you have a language to do a thing, you can do the thing. I'm, I'm a huge believer in that. But that being said, I do think that Python is kind of a nice fit just because there's good scientific libraries in it. And also it's easy to pick up. So for me, someone who's not a hardcore statistician, that's why I didn't opt to use R. And I did actually use R a little bit, but I found it a little bit frustrating when I was, when I was reading documentation and having to look up every other thing because it was a lot of a heavy stats speak. There's also SAS, of course, but I, I found Python to be an, a nice medium in where there's an active community that I can field questions to there's rich libraries and it is user-friendly so yay for me (laughs) and you managed to not only learn python but become kind of a prominent figure in the python world yeah yeah so i think and this will be my endless love for chicago (laughs) be talking about how i love chicago here but i think what's really cool about chicago is we have a very rich for example a very rich ruby community and a lot of the people that i know who are very active in creating spaces for people who are underrepresented be it by you know your religious creed be it by how you identify be it you know your whatever way you slice and dice it um i was i very much enjoyed that ruby had a very welcoming space for people who are beginners. And I really wanted to try to create more of that for the Python community in Chicago. We do have a very, very well-established Python user group, but going to that meeting, which is, I think every second Thursday of the month, sometimes the topics can be very beginner friendly, but sometimes they can be very deep because we have a very rich data science community and a really rich community of academics who use Python in their research. So it can just be like, whoo, this is completely over my head. So kind of tapping into the welcome, beginner-friendly atmosphere that Ruby had created and that had empowered me when I was making this the switch into software, I wanted to try to do that with Python. So I started with PyLadies here in Chicago. From there, as my work in that community continued to grow, we brought Django Girls, which if you are familiar with any of the other various workshops that teach a framework, it's same kind of concept. You do it in a day or two. We brought Django Girls to Chicago. And then eventually I wanted to do more on kind of a global kind of center, uh, global kind of view where then I put my name up last year for the Python Software Foundation Board. Not thinking I would actually get it because there was a lot of really cool people who put their names forward, but I was very pleasantly surprised to uh, get nominated as a director for this past year. So yeah, I guess it started with, I want to do more things and see more people who are like me talking and doing things in Python. And then it just, it went from there. What exactly does the Python Software Foundation do? So the Python Software Foundation, we aren't the people who go in and oversee the future of like what's going to be in the language, but instead we are the group that gives out 
money to people to do Python events around the world. We are people that oversee code of conduct violations. We we maintain a blog. We're kind of the people who are trying to create and promote the Python culture around the world and make sure that we are continuing to evangelize it in a way that makes it accessible for people pretty much of all backgrounds and from all regional spaces. That's a really big emphasis is to make sure that we are getting Python into people's hands that are further removed from software engineering or maybe even from coding than some other communities may be. So that looks like uh, we offer grants for events. We give out a CSA, a community service award, every quarter to two folks. We maintain a blog of events of things that are going on. We have different mailing lists that we oversee, like our infrastructure. We've got different Python code repositories that we kind of manage behind the scenes. We make sure to maintain dialogues with the IRC channels. We do not ourselves govern those, but we, we make sure to try to kind of stay aware of what's going on with that. And a lot of it is just, I like to kind of say it's glorified email reading, but, but I mean, you really are acting as a, you know, it, you essentially are a volunteer doing the kind of not exciting grunt work of making sure that people are able to do really cool events around the world and making sure that they are able to get the resources they need to make that thing happen. See, I'm so jealous of that. Um, I know PHP has a foundation that does sort of similar things. And mm-hmm. you talked about outreach being sort of core to the mission of the Python Software Foundation. Yep. In the Ruby world, we have like one small team of people led by Matt who handle the language Right, right, we right. have Ruby Central, which puts on RailsConf and RubyConf and sort of helps organize events. We have Ruby Together, which raises money to fund paying developers to maintain critical infrastructure. But there's no one who's responsible for outreach. There's no one who's responsible right. for the culture of the Ruby community. And I really wish that we had some kind of structure in place for that kind of thing. So I'm, I'm really jealous. And I think the Ruby community could learn a lot from these other language communities and really improve what we do. I mean, we have Rails Girls and we have Rails Bridge and some other organizations like that that do some limited amount of outreach, but their budgets are small and they're not right. core. They're not core to the community, frankly. Right. I, I think what's actually uh, really interesting also about what you've mentioned is so these smaller workshops that are easy to export and bring to communities that have a very well-defined learning objective. So in the Python space, that would be Django Girls, which was started in Berlin. And to me, to kind of compare it as someone who is Latina living in Chicago and Chicago being a very big uh, Ruby and Rails community for the web development space, seeing Rails Bridge and seeing Rails Girls, it does, from my perspective, have a very strong US-centric kind of worldview. And again, that's just how I experienced it in Chicago. But when I started participating in Django Girls, I found that the community was very, very different and it complemented well because it was started by women from Europe, from West Europe, and it actually has a very strong representation outside the United States. There's much more of these Django Girls events happening. And I think like the Django Software Foundation actually, I think, has a really good, well-informed conversation with their community in ways that I think the PSF is trying to understand better, or at least from my perspective as a director coming in, how do we stay informed with the organizers in the field doing the work? How do we do these kind of things? How do we make sure we're properly empowering them? I think that you are speaking to the same kind of observations that I've seen as a Python language person, if you will, um, which is that these smaller kind of communities that have then gained global spread, if you will, have been perhaps a power engine to help maybe unify some conversation or at least identify target areas that we can start putting agenda items around. Yeah, going back to what you were saying a few minutes ago, Coraline, it does seem like, as Lorena mentioned, that there are plenty of learning resources in Ruby, but it does have a different character. It's like there's a bunch of little small resources that somebody wrote, uh, but they're all passion projects. They're one or two people. They might not get updated for a couple of years. And like you said, there's just not a lot of structure. And I, I wonder if that's something in Ruby's culture that maybe we're missing. If it is a cultural thing, and I, and I think it is because... Um, Ruby is essentially an autocracy, right? From a language perspective, it's an autocracy. And we have this motto of, you know, we are nice because Mats is nice. Um, we have no definition of what niceness is. We have no history of enforcing niceness or of introducing consequences when someone is not quote unquote nice. We're lacking anything that sort of governs and directs the culture of the language community. And I think that's a real lack. And I don't want to get into the whole Ruby code of conduct thing, so I'm going to stop right there. 
Yeah. Well, I guess maybe to supplement a little bit on that and to ask a question. So I was recently in Cuba and the way I actually got to Cuba was A, I just wanted to go. So that's, that's actually why. But B, I really wanted to meet some of the people who are doing software and that are coding in Cuba. And there's a Python Cuba mailing list. I don't know anything about the mailing lists for Ruby or like how conversations bubble up because I know I have dev chicks. I know I have sisters. I know I have all my Python lists if I want to reach out to people who are doing Python. How do people tend to communicate with one another in other communities? I, I'm kind of curious about that because for me, I was able to send an email to Python Cuba and say, hey, I'm coming. I want to talk to people who do Python. I was invited to the University of Havana. I got to see how they use Python in computer science. I got to see how they're using it in artificial intelligence, I was able to speak at a, yes, this is legitimately the name of the group, Social Encounter for Developers. <laughs> I was invited to speak at that. But again, it, it's just kind of like there's like all these constructs that are easily available. And I think the PSF just all they really, I mean, we just surface that and we, we maintain the infrastructure of that. But how, how does that happen in the, in the Ruby space? And yes, it's a really awkward name, Social Encounters for Developers. I laughed really hard when I heard that. <laughs> but it abbreviates to said, so that's okay. There you go. Well, yeah, so I can speak to that at least a little bit. There are plenty of regional Ruby lists, uh, Ruby mailing lists, I should say. Uh, PDX Ruby has one um, that I've been running for years or helping to run. We recently started a Slack, and then, I've, you know, recently is like in the last year or so. And pretty much all of the conversation has migrated over to Slack. The email list is pretty much just announcements to 1,200 people at this point. I did mm -hmm. do what you talked about the last time I went to London, and the London Ruby mailing list is pretty good. It's quiet for a while, and then there will be a thread with 10 or 15 contributions to it. But yeah, I did do that. I emailed the, the list and said, hey, I'm going to be in London. Do any Rubyists want to meet up? And, you know, I had a nice conversation with two guys in a pub. But yeah, it doesn't seem like there's as strong an interconnection between those regional groups. Yeah. That, so one of the areas I'm really, really interested in is Python in Latin America and, and Central South Latin America, broadly speaking, in the Caribbean. And I, a lot of it has been, it's been through the mail list. I find that when I say, hey, let's talk in Slack. And this is a broader question, which is what is the future of organizing in languages? Because I find that the idea of like, what is Slack is already weird for some people. I, I don't know. I, I don't know how to properly express that. But I find that like there's a fatigue for where do I go and get sources of information to do a thing. And then if, you know, at least like a mailing list is something I can check in on every once in a while. But then I find Slack, well, I love Slack. I also find the idea of that to be also a little bit of a fatigue. So I'm curious if anyone has any expertise around that for the future of organizing. I don't know. I've noticed that it seems to be something that if you're a little bit younger, you're more open to Slack. And if you're a little bit older, it feels like yet another place to go. Because I started a, I helped start an anthropology Slack. And there, a lot of the younger anthropologists were like, yay, we finally have one. And a lot of the older ones were like, look, we have listservs. I don't know if I need another place. I don't want to check my email. And I was like, well, it's not email. It's the chat. And they're like, we, we already do this. So we don't need this again. So I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, and if you're not paying for Slack, you lose backscroll. And if mm -hmm. you're working with people around the world, losing backscroll can be pretty terrible. And Slack has very publicly stated they're not interested in developing features for non-paying customers like right. you know, organ groups, community groups, and things like that. So I don't, I don't think that's going to improve anytime soon. Yeah, I, and I think what's really cool, and I don't know if it's just because maybe I've just become more involved increasingly from the local, like the regional level to a, a, a broader level. But it's been really exciting to see all these podcasts. I was very excited when I, when I got to hear about this podcast, for example, but the, just the idea of like, how do people synthesize information? And what's a great way to make it digestible such that people can hear it and participate in a way that's meaningful and relevant to them. So podcasts have been really interesting in that space for me too, because again, there are podcasts that speak more broadly to us as coders, us as what we do day to day, but also us within the specific communities in which we interact. So that might be language, that might be problem space, et cetera, et cetera. I want to go back to this idea that there may be a difference in the Python and the Ruby community in terms of how they organize. And I think, at least in my experience, having a centralization of resources and support and information uh, has a lot of advantages, but it, it has some disadvantages too. And I wonder how in the Python community, they make sure that they are presenting diverse voices and mm -hmm. not 
favoring one group over other groups and things like that when they have a centralized place where people go to get that information? Yeah, I think that's a really, really great question. And it's obviously something that needs to constantly be looked at and reviewed. So you might think you have a solution today, but that doesn't mean it's going to be a solution in two months, two weeks, a year, et cetera. So one of the, one of the ways in which we try to think about that is, so for example, when, when it comes to, um, requesting grants for an event, like I am in, uh, I'm in Nepal and I want to have this Python day and here's my budget of items. Cool. If you have a board that's entirely made up of people from, you know, Chicago, that's not going to, we're not going to be able to speak very well to, to the idea of what's a practical budget for a, Python day in Nepal, right? What, what does that mean? And what does that look like? So there's actually a working group, a grants working group, which has two people from each regional area that participate in the grants review, if you will. And also anytime when a grant does come up that does need expertise from a kind of regionalized kind of context, we make sure to, to incorporate those, those voices. Granted, this is an ongoing effort and not something that is a hundred percent fixed. We are always actively trying to make sure we have a fair number of people to talk with and people that we actually know are doing things, you know, that are actually who they say they are. Um, so that, that, that is one way we try to think about it is having grants group that has a diverse geographical kind of makeup. And then also making sure that there is a limit on the number of terms that a person can do on the board of directors is another way to think about it. And also then there's, there's been a lot of conversation in thinking about, um, you know, for example, in uh, the EuroPython community is very well established. They have their own working groups. There's some idea of perhaps maybe the PSF kind of turning more, a little bit more into a, um, I'm not sure what the proper word would be, but perhaps kind of more like a an overarching kind of umbrella and underneath having regionalized Python bodies that have more power and have working groups that are explicitly defined to their geographic area and then continue to grow up from there. So the way that we could perhaps think of that is rather than the PSF of overseeing grants that are broadly happening in what we may think of as Europe, perhaps we pass that off to the, the EuroPython society and then from there their working groups can do things. So there's a lot to be said about how do you how do you have the proper structure, how do you have the proper voices in and how do you ensure that that is actually happening? And I think these are all questions that all the board members continue to surface over and over. The other thing, too, then is also how do you make sure that knowledge is transparent and that things are happening? I know that there's just a lot of projects that the, that the board members try to do. So I know I'm working on a uh, organizer's manual for like, hey, you want to run your first Python. And a big effort that I'm doing is to try to create a section that's for regional organizers not where I put their contact information in there, but I actually say, hey, we would love for you to contribute your name if you've been a regional organizer or you're interested in being a, reg a regional organizer on this um, on this Git book that we're creating. So uh, so I think a big, a big thing for us is just making sure that we continue to understand what is within the purview of the PSF, what is not, making sure that we expose ignorance on issues that we know that we are woefully ignorant on and making sure we push those discussions to mailing lists when, when applicable and as much as possible going out into the world and talking about what the PSF does. I went to PyCon Jamaica and I spoke about the PSF. I was in Cuba. I'm probably going to Mexico. Um, and you know, this is not something that's paid. This is something that I opted to do as a volunteer who was nominated on the, on the board of directors. So clearly you, you've got to be someone who really likes doing this kind of stuff. But I think with the right kind of mindset and the right kind of structures in place, you can at least get something that, that works and then you can continue to iterate on that. So I'm pretty fascinated by how groups of people organize and form relationships with each other and the power structures that emerge from those relationships. And with something like PSF or any sort of organizing body, it really depends on the good faith of the people doing the work. And I'm happy to say that as far as I've seen, PSF has always done a great job of, of considering the issues that you're talking about. But how do you maintain that as a group? How do you ensure that everyone that you, you know, have participate in the PSF is doing the best work they can and, and thinking about all these issues? Do we have the powers to veto someone out if need be? Unfortunately, like there, there's truth that this kind of work doesn't fit with everyone's life. Let people's lives change and sometimes they're not able to give the commitment that they could otherwise. And another way, and this might not speak explicitly to holding individuals on the board accountable, but at least seeing like what the board does or rather what does the money that the PSF have 
do in the community. I've been trying to create more content for the PSF blog and trying to put more effort into having write-ups from the events actually make its way into the blog so that at least people can see what's happening in the community in the world around us. So there is still a bit of this honor system, if you will. But the other thing to think about is tooling around like elections. I know that there was a lot of feedback with the election last year, how that should work, how it should be announced, what that ought to look like, where should that information be published. Sadly, I would say it's still something that when I talk to some people about Python, they're like, what is the PSF? And I think that is a really big sign that we need to continue to, to keep on doing this good work. One way we might think about changing that is how long do people actually serve on the board? Is it practical to have 12 new people every year? Should we try to think about restructuring to have more stability such that knowledge is transferred a little bit more smoothly? Do we think about hiring more people for the PSF that are actual staffers? I don't know. These are kind of questions that happen within the board itself and is something that's actively ongoing, but at least for the big Python events, granted, it does assume that you can go to, to like something like EuroPython or to something like PyCon. We do at least have the PSF um, member meeting where people can come and chat. And that all being said, pretty much every board member is very, very active on social media, and we do our best to try to make ourselves as accessible as possible. So there's been small changes in the idea of writing monthly reports, the idea of uh, how do we do the election cycle and what does that tool look like? And then also just making sure that we're pushing as much information to the blog as possible. But obviously that there's still a lot more work that needs to be done. How is PSF funded? Yeah. So there's corporate sponsorships. We also accept donations and that is pretty much the big stuff. So PyCon is our really big, it funds a lot of things. And then we have organizations that are sponsors at different levels. And then, like I said, we've got the individual folks who might donate through uh, python.org. So PSF is a 501c3, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a nonprofit organization, and that comes with some regulations and restrictions on you yeah, know, how you have yeah. to do business. Yep, yep, yep. Um, so a lot of what you're talking about is, is governance. And how much of that is sort of what you have to do to meet with the rules and regulations of being a, a nonprofit organization? And how much of that is self-imposed, you know, out yeah. of your own desire to do better and, <laughs> and to, you know, to, to govern well? This presents interesting and unique challenges when we get funding requests from areas where the United States, because we are registered in the United States, where we have sanctions with countries that restricts us from being able to fund events as a software foundation. So Zimbabwe, for example, is a kind of interesting space for us. We want to be able to fund events and activities there, but there are restrictions that are imposed upon us by being a nonprofit in the United States. So other ways to think about that is perhaps, can we create a, a dialogue around a GoFundMe to get a speaker out there? Is there ways that we can be a, an ally in helping create awareness a, about the event that allows us to perhaps both bring agency to this community and empower this community in some way while also respecting the legal implications of how we are set up. So there's that. We also have Kurt, who's our overlord of everything financial, and he knows all of that inside and out. I, I would say I am not first on that, but the good thing is we have a lawyer on retainer. We also have then people who are uh, Ava, who is the director for the Python Software Foundation. She she is, I don't know how she does everything she does, but she's very well versed in nonprofit management and is actively always participating in trainings and things like that. So from my perspective as an individual, I always try to say, okay, if we can't do that, how can we do this? And a lot of that then will require directors to do outreach on their own, to try to have dialogues around what are other ways we can help and then have the dialogue with the foundation to make sure that what we are doing is indeed legal. So it, it can be difficult at times. So there are times when what you want to do as a foundation, what you think is the right thing for you to do, is in conflict with the regulations uh, imposed on you by being a nonprofit? I mean, from the time that I've seen it, the way I've experienced it has been if we can fund grants in areas where we have where there may be sanctions. I, I, I mean that probably a lot of the regulations you're dealing with have to do with who you can get money from, who you can give money to, right? Uh, how right. you track that money. Yep, 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 yep. Which, you know, I, I, like I said, I'm not, I'm by no means an expert in that area. So 
the reality of it is, is sometimes you get that answer where you're like, why is this not a thing we can do? And unless you're able to talk to whatever power that be that oversees, you know, economic sanctions on a country, you just can't do it. But that's not a unique constraint for the PSF, right? That's a constraint that other nonprofits will will face. So if you are a nonprofit that's trying to do work evangelizing technology in other ways, you're going to face those implications. It's kind of interesting. The um, Do Good Data for Social Justice, I think I might be botching that name, but it's a fellowship at the University of Chicago, they've done some really cool work where they're trying to create transparency with elections in areas that may have some questionable outcomes. And the question may be is, is this actually a fair and viable election? But um, some of the stories they talked there about like how they can do that and what they can do being a fellowship in a private university is difficult. So I don't know, I guess these are constraints we face both as individuals, as people and nonprofits, and also as as part of, you know, businesses or whatever communities that you're in. It's a very different perspective than what I'm used to. Like all the talk about politics and identity. And I just like, I don't even have the framework (laughs) to be able to talk about these things. So it's super great that you do. I, well, I think the I think the most fascinating thing has for me has been it was by becoming a coder that I think I was much more capable of talking about these things in a way that other people can bring their own experiences to it. Because I think for a long time, the way I looked at problems and I tried to dissect them made a lot of assumptions. Whereas as a software engineer, you have to like flush those assumptions out to the front. So I don't know. I think code has empowered me in some capacity to think a little bit more holistically about things. That's awesome. Almost- Holistically and like rigorously? I hope rigorously. I mean, that's that's always a work in progress, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. It says a lot about like the way we think and the languages we already speak. You mentioned earlier, maybe this is my reflection, that uh, you shied away from R because the docs assume that you speak statistics. Mm-hmm. Each of our languages has like a meta language that people use to talk about the language. Like in Haskell, you need to know category theory to understand a lot of it. And in Scala, you need some some type theory. And that affects the audience that can uh, come to that language. And you remarked that at Python in Chicago, there were a lot of academics and data science. And that's a language that people use to talk about the language of Python. And yet with PyLadies and Django Girls and all these other initiatives and the PSF, there's a conscious effort to broaden that on-ramp to decrease the prerequisites to speak in a language that more people can understand about the language of Python, which then in turn has taught you Uh, new ways of speaking about politics. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think the really cool thing also, and at the minimum, I I always get so silly because I think there are some people who will say my language is better than your language. But I think what they're trying to speak to is some of this there's some cultural nuances to different communities. And I really appreciate, like I said, I've learned so much from the Chicago Ruby community. It is such a warm and accessible community. And some of the people I met, like I met Coraline very early on in my time pivoting into um, writing code, that really it it empowered me to be like, hey, I can do this and then some. So I kind of laugh when people talk about, well, my language is better than your language, when really they're talking about the culture and it's not even so much about the language. And then I have to roll my eyes and say, well, you can do whatever you want with that language or with this language, it doesn't really matter. So yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot to be said about how communities organize themselves, what kind of messaging that they use, but then how does that also then inform where we're at as coders today and about the tools that we create and how those tools that we create can help change the landscape around us. That's awesome. Um, Sam, do you have any thoughts on the conversation? Uh, my thoughts on the conversation are that I slept very poorly last night, and I really look forward to listening to this episode so I can find out what everybody said. <laughs> Sorry. Bear. Oh, no. Astrid, how about you? I really liked, Lorena, that it seemed like what brought you to programming was your what you were already interested in, which was political science, because that's something that I can relate to, having had a you know, previous, well, I guess, an ongoing career as a social scientist. And part of my reflection, I think, is a kind of a question, because in the beginning, uh, when you were talking about your origin story, you were saying how when you first got started, that this idea that code can and should touch everything wasn't 
a concept that people really considered at the time. And so part of what I, I guess, want to know if you have an answer is what do you think that it could be doing, you know, code and programming that it's not doing? Because, you know, now we hear about how everybody should be a programmer and, get, and code does everything everywhere. But then there's still, like as a testimony to some of the things you mentioned, a lot of gaps in our knowledge about what's actually going on and how we address it. So what do you think that it could be doing that's not doing? Yeah, I think I've kind of said this in a few different ways, but the now you can code and what do I do with that? The idea that you write beautiful code and it, I don't know, it cut X number of time and it met my SLA and I got my VC funding. I don't know. I'm, I'm being obviously silly. But I think that uh, to me, I'm, I'm really, really concerned about the way in which we build tools and how the assumptions we make when we create our tools actually changes the world around us. And for mm -hmm. me, that's very much seen in the political space. So, you know, the news recommender algorithm that Facebook created, which may or may not have polarized more our idea of how we received news, how we then create these echo chambers, the idea of fake news in Twitter, um, the idea of, you know, even like with Uber, like a few years ago, they had that whole scandal with the um, mapping the right of shame. I mean, people are creating these tools and I think just kind of throwing things over the fence, expecting that like, hey, I made this. I don't have to think about that concept or retool it over time. I mean, the idea of Airbnb being well black. I mean, there's there is a social discourse and dialogue that I think each of you here understand and participate with in your own way. And I think it's really incumbent upon us as tool makers to be at the forefront of that conversation and making sure we're advocating appropriately and understanding our own biases and how that brings very real implications to the social fabric around us. So the one book that I, I really love that I encourage everyone to read is Weapons of Math Destruction, which was published just very recently. But essentially, she's a data scientist who talks about how she was in finance and really just her transition into from the academic space into data science and how some of these glaring implications in the social fabric she really hadn't thought about before until it really started changing people's lives and she could see it. So I think that that's kind of where we're at right now. And maybe your day-to-day -day job isn't writing the software that predicts, you know, maybe you're not Nate Silver and you're predicting that like the next person's going to win a campaign or not, but, but you could be someone who's creating, a, who's creating, you know, you're working at Airbnb, you're thinking about how do people book rentals around you and what does that actually mean about how people then interact in the physical spaces around them? Are we actually like, you know, redlining again? Are we actually like reifying some of these demarcations in the social landscape that already exist. I, I, I just think sometimes these conversations are so remiss, or perhaps we don't think enough about that, that it can be very scary. And for those of you who don't know what the um, right of shame thing was, essentially, Uber started mapping late night repeat trips that people were taking from one location to another. So like the idea that you might say the walk of shame, if you think of like college students, like from one person walking from one room in a dorm to another with the suspect that perhaps there was a romantic connection there. Now Uber was doing that as a ride of shame. And so, yeah, anyways, it's very scary. And I think these are the things that I really want people to think about when they're thinking about how to create their tool. But it's not just, hey, I created the tool. It's like, now the tool is being used. Let's reevaluate. You need to have that ongoing discourse and reflection. That kind of ties into the, to what I've been thinking about. And I had a brief tweet storm about it last week, I think. We have this idea as developers that, you know, we're free of bias, that we're logical, that we're rational. Yeah. Um, I talk about this all the time. We think of software as neutral. And I got into an argument with someone about how software is not neutral. They're like, how does bias reflect in a point of sale system? But so much of the software that we, that we write, it's not neutral. Software is always sociopolitical. Software also ha always has social consequences and in some cases political consequences. And that's something I think that we as developers need to pay more attention to. So, Lorena, what you were saying about like the life cycle of data, this is really important too. Think about the data you're collecting, why you're collecting it, and what you plan on doing with it when your startup goes belly up. Because I have heard stories of startups in their death throes trying to raise money by selling personal data that they've collected about their users. And that's the kind of thing that happens. And it was recently pointed out to me that you can find out who I am um, by searching Coraline Trans Chicago. That takes you directly to my Wikipedia page. So data collection is scary and the networks of collected data are really scary and they have real repercussions for real people. And that's something we should be thinking about more. 
Yes. <laughs> I, I have nothing more to add to that than just yes, times a bunch. Rain, do you have any thoughts on today's episode? I have many thoughts. Um, the, the first one is that I think it's time to do away with this notion that software can be apolitical or that it should be apolitical. Like you were saying, uh, software is inherently political. It's what you get when people come together and, and do work together. And it's also the way that we mediate our interaction with potentially millions of people by shipping it. Uh, and to, so to put it in another way, software is is made by people for people. There's no way it, it can't be political. Yeah, just the, like the whole idea of like the when I think of from 2008, when I started playing with code and political campaign to like now, even that conversation has changed so much. So I think we're becoming more aware of it. It's just that we need to be unapologetic about this conversation, I think. And that also means reflecting on my like, I, I reflect on myself a lot. And I do my best to hold myself accountable. But I need other people to, to hold myself accountable. So I think that's also the other edge of it, right? It's It's not just that we know it happens, but also uh, when you get that feedback, what do you do with that feedback? This has been a great discussion, and I want to thank everyone who participated. A special thanks to Lorena and Rain, who joined us um, at relatively short notice this week. And we're very happy to have both of your voices as part of the conversation this week. And we hope to hear from you again in the near future. So everyone out there, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, consider contributing at patreon.com slash greater than code and we will talk to you next week thanks and bye